this Advent, we are looking at the minor characters of Christmas, those characters that don't fit into nativity scenes and don't make it as part of Christmas pageants. Even the major characters like Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and the angels are minor to the central figure of Jesus Christ. We are all called to be minor characters, not looking to make a name for ourselves, but to exalt the name above all names, Jesus the Christ. But that doesn't mean we don't acknowledge or give thanks for the minor characters in Scripture as well as the minor characters in our world. Dr. Robert Charles Sproul, better known as R.C. Sproul, was one of those minor characters who had a major influence on so many of us by continually pointing us to Jesus Christ. Dr. Sproul entered into glory on Thursday and have this morning several quotes uh, throughout the sermon as he continues to teach. A native of Pittsburgh, many of us, not just in this area, but and not even in this country, but around the world, are so thankful for his rich biblical teaching in books, videos, radio messages, and conferences. When I tell people that I went to Reform Theological Seminary in Orlando, almost always the next question that I'm asked is, did you have R.C. Sproul as one of your professors? And the answer is yes. I was very privileged uh, to have R.C. as one of my professors, uh, not only uh, in classes, but he also would occasionally lead uh, brown bag lunch sessions where you could come uh, and students could ask any question that they wanted and we just sort of sit under his feet and let him teach. And since I also worked part-time in the administrative office, I had uh, several opportunities um, to interact with him in various uh, social settings. Uh, Jen and I were recently remembering uh, one of those occasions uh, when we had received an invitation to go to the uh, seminary president's house for uh, their annual Christmas party. Well, the invitation made it sound like it was no big deal, sort of a come-as-you-are sort of thing. And that's what I communicated to my wife. We got there and found out that all the faculty, all the administration, several major donors were there, and it was a bigger shindig than we thought. We were actually on our way to go pick up a mattress from somebody's house uh, in order for one of our visiting family members to come to sleep on. We were not quite dressed in our Sunday finest. We felt like very minor characters surrounded by some pretty amazing people, but they treated us so well. In fact, throughout our seminary years, we were endlessly surrounded by um, many of the best Bible teachers in the world, and they never made students feel like lesser thans. In fact, they honored the students and continually encouraged us to go out into our calling and to preach the word of God. As R.C. put it, you are required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true not what you want the Bible to say is true. And so it is my great privilege this morning to preach on Luke 2, verses 21 through 35, and one of the most interesting minor characters of Christmas, Simeon. Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. Let's pray. Our God, you are indeed the God of revelation who has spoken uh, throughout time, Uh, to speak of those redemptive works that you have accomplished in this world. The fullness of that revelation is now so accessible to us. We have the whole Bible right here. We can hold open in our laps, open it in our apps, and to take it with us everywhere. We pray then that your Holy Spirit would now bear witness 
that we would be able to take this word with us everywhere that we go. And so we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. I do encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 2 and beginning at verse 21 and going through verse 35 and listen to God's perfect word. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. From this account, I would have you see Simeon's story and Simeon's song. We first hear Simeon's story in the context of Joseph and Mary presenting Jesus in obedience to the Old Testament law. Verse 21 tells us, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And last week we talked about that ceremony of circumcision by which a child was given that covenant sign indicating that he was a part of the covenant community of Israel. This corresponds to the New Testament sign of baptism, indicating that children are a part of the new covenant community of the church of Jesus Christ. And so we also saw last week that John the Baptist was presented in this way, given this covenant sign, and so it turns out John the Baptist is a Presbyterian, receiving that covenant sign as an infant. Jesus likewise presented on the eighth day of his life with the service of circumcision and the naming of the child. Remember when I was growing up in my church and I would uh, be a part of those baptism services and watch it happen and the pastor would ask the parents, what is this child's Christian name? And I always thought that was strange. Does the pastor not remember the child's name? Uh, did, he, did he forget already? Kid's just like three months old. We all know his name anyway. Well, it was later that I realized that having the parents say the child's Christian name was a way of connecting the service of baptism to that service of circumcision where the child is presented and he is, uh, his name is publicly announced. 
But something else to notice here in this naming that very much applies to us. He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him, before he had been conceived. Each of us has been given a name. It's a name that our parents picked out for us, but it was a name that God had planned for us before we were ever conceived. Psalm 139 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Ephesians 1, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And 2 Timothy 1 says that God has saved us, called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, grace given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God chose a name for each of us. Not only before we were conceived, but before the beginning of time. More importantly, God chose to love us, to save us from our sins, to adopt us as one of his children before the beginning of time. Before there was dirt, God knew our name and loved us so that we would come to know his name. There is then a second presentation that happens in verse 22. We read that when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's another one of those places where one verse and the next verse happen uh, not immediately after each other, but there's a time period. Uh, As we read earlier in the service from Leviticus 12, that purification time is 40 days. And so verse 21 happens in Bethlehem, on the eighth day of Jesus' life. And then verses 22 to 24 happen in Jerusalem on the 40th day of his life. And from Leviticus 12, we saw that an offering would be made of a lamb, unless the family was poor, in which case they could offer two pigeons. In offering pigeons, we recognize that Jesus was indeed born into a poor family a further reminder of the humility of the incarnation of Jesus, born into a lowly earthly position, the king of kings, born in such low position. And these offerings were recognition that we are born in sin inherited from Adam. One commentator says this, the sacrifices symbolize that the sacrificer deserved death but the sacrificial animal is loaded with the guilt and death penalty and for the sake of the sacrifice enters upon the death to set him free from the guilt of his death. All of which in the Old Testament anticipated the sacrifice that was to come in Christ. But here we have Jesus who is without sin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He does not inherit Adam's sin. He's separated from sin even at conception of birth. So why did Joseph and Mary go through the process of purification? Because God commanded it. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Another commentator says this, God laid his rightful claim to the life of every firstborn son in Israel, yet parents were still allowed to raise their own children. All they had to do was acknowledge God's sovereignty by redeeming their sons with a sacrifice. When parents presented their children to God, they were setting them apart for his service. And from this, we learn to set apart our own children apart from God, for God, which we do through the covenant sign of baptism. 
And so Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what we are still called to do, obey the law of the Lord. So Jesus comes to fulfill the law in its entirety. In fact, next to verses 22 to 24 in my Bible, I've written a reference. And that reference is Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So in order to save us from our sin, Jesus had to fulfill the law in its entirety on our behalf. The good news in that is that when we falter, there is forgiveness because Jesus never faltered. He was perfect. That, of course, doesn't mean that we are excused from God's commands, but there is always forgiveness even when we stumble in keeping God's moral law still today. Now, all of that is the backdrop to Simeon's story. Simeon is first mentioned in verse 25, and this is what we read. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What a picture of a minor character. One who the world considers unimportant, but who the Lord calls in order to bring glory to God. We notice in this that we don't really learn hardly anything about who Simeon is. None of the stuff that we would consider important. We don't know what Simeon's occupation was. No indication given. But often when we meet one another, we talk about what our calling is, what it is we do for a living. We don't know where Simeon lived. We aren't told anything about his relatives. We don't know if he was well-regarded or not. We don't know what his house looked like. We don't know whether he was wealthy or poor. All that we are told is that he is righteous and devout. Oh, that that would be said of God's people today, that we are righteous and devout. I wonder, though, if perhaps what we really wish was true of us is that last phrase, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. I think many of us have wished that the Holy Spirit would be upon us and give us special revelation, that we might have perhaps a prophetic word. Of course, most of the prophets were persecuted and killed, so sometimes we rethink that idea. And the special revelations that were received were not about personal things. We often want God to give us special revelation about personal things. God, what am I supposed to do with my life? Who am I supposed to to marry? What, What path should I follow in order to have the most happiness in my life? God gave special revelation about what he was doing. And in this case, God is sending the consolation of Israel. Verse 26 says it like this, that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It actually literally says, kind of a play on words, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he would see the Christ of the Lord. And so for those wishing they could receive special revelation and prophetic announcements, I have some good news we have received the fullness of prophecy. We have the fullness of God's revealed word. Is it any wonder that Dr. Sproul said, I'll retire when they pry my cold, dead fingers off of my Bible. We have here in the Old and New Testament, Holy Scripture, the very word of God, the fullness of his revelation. 
And so R.C. said, people in awe never complain that church is boring. The Holy Spirit bearing witness right now to the holy word of the holy God. Simeon's story becomes our story. Simeon, moved by the Holy Spirit, goes to the temple courts. And how many days had he had gone previously? But he goes in and the Spirit leads him to this young couple. And lo and behold, there he is. The Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's anointed being brought into the temple courts. And he's able to take up this Christ into his arms. We are moved by the Spirit, not just to go into the temple courts, but to become a temple where the Holy Spirit himself takes up residence within our very hearts. And we come together as God's people, coming to form and be built together into a temple. And it causes us to sing joyful songs. And so we go from Simeon's story to Simeon's song. Now, when you look at Simeon's song in verses 29 to 32, it may not be one of those Christmas songs that first comes to mind. Kind of hard to come up with a tune, right? Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Kind of sounds like Will Ferrell in Elf, doesn't it? I'm in a store and I'm singing. I'm in a st- this is called Simeon's song as one of the prophetic Christmas songs that we get in Luke. Mary's song, the Magnificat, Zachariah's song, the Benedictus, and here it is Simeon's song, Nunc Dimittis, the first two words in Latin that is translated, now dismiss. Sovereign Lord, now dismiss your servant in peace. Those words have often been misunderstood. Simeon is not saying that he wishes he would die. It's saying that he knew according to God's word that he would not die until he had seen the Christ. It's not like Simeon is saying, I could die happy if I could only see the Christ. Simeon is merely noting that God's word has been fulfilled. And he is filled with peace and joy because of it. So it is that we should be filled with peace and joy. For we are no longer waiting to see the Christ. We already see him and receive him in the glorious power of the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed how many Presbyterians leave Presbyterian churches and go on to attend more charismatic churches? You know why? It's because they long for a peace and joy that is sometimes missing, if we can be honest, among Presbyterians. In our doctrinal seriousness, we often neglect the spirit-filled joy that we ought to have. Jesus came to set us free. We receive salvation. Jesus is light shining in our darkness, and we should echo the words and the celebration of Simeon, who says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon, looking into the very face of salvation, for it turns out that salvation is not a thing, but a person, the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the name Jesus means. The name being announced at this purification service, Jesus means the Lord saves, and Simeon sees salvation as he sees the Jesus child. By the Spirit, we gaze into the face of Jesus, and with Simeon, we see salvation. R.C. Sproul said, we are secure 
not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. With Simeon, we look into the face of the consolation himself. R.C. would say, to know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me is indeed my ultimate consolation. We live in a world that increasingly has allowed us to become anonymous. Our online presence hidden by screen names and physical separation from those with whom we interact. We say things online that we would never say in front of another person. We pretend to be who we aren't and we hope that we are not found out, that other people would never discover the truth about the real us. The omniscient God of the universe knows everything about us and yet loves us still. Simeon was in the presence of God, holding the incarnate God in his very arms. Come into the presence of God. Come into the presence of the one who knows everything about you, yet loves you. That is our Christmas song. People in awe never complain that church is boring. The last verse of Simeon's song is very reminiscent of the gospel witness that we saw in the book of Acts. That salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That it turns out the gospel is not just for the Jews. It is also for the Gentiles. That's, that's us. There can be no racism in Christianity. The gospel is for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are one in Christ Jesus. Of all the things that might separate us in terms of worldly status and the way in which the world would look upon us, our one uniting factor of all Christians in all places in all times is that we are one in Christ. You know, it's interesting that Simeon sings that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles of Simeon's time, and Israel also for that matter, were in gross darkness, but they certainly didn't think so. If you had gone to Herod's palace and asked, is the Gentile world in darkness? Herod would have said, oh, of course not. The Gentile world is the Roman world. And Rome has brought light to barbarians and to the barbarous people. Rome has brought great light to so many people. If you'd asked the Greek philosophers of that time, they would have said, we have Plato. We have Socrates. We have the great philosophies. We are an enlightened people. But if you were to ask God, he would indeed say that the world then and the world now is in darkness apart from the light Jesus brings. Does not our world today extol its greatness? Look at our scientific achievements. Look at our technological marvels. Look at how enlightened we are in our thinking about sex, gender, tolerance, equality, and inclusivity. But God in Romans 1 shows that the problem is not that the light is not available, but that people suppress the light and bring on their own darkness. God has revealed himself in nature, but people don't like the God that is revealed. So they turn from that light into greater darkness. Romans 1 says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. To that, R.C. Sproul wrote, the unregenerate person 
will believe anything about God except that which has been clearly revealed in Scripture or in creation. Think about that. The unregenerate person will believe anything about God except that which has been clearly revealed in Scripture or in creation. That's exactly what Romans says. And Romans goes on to show how the rejection of God results in immorality of all forms. And we certainly see that still in our world and in our own country today. Contemporary Christmas time in our land has grown increasingly secular. People want the good feelings of Christmas, but to eliminate Christ is darkness. Jesus is the light. Increasingly, the Christmas songs that are sung have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is the light to those who do not even know they are in darkness. Do you know the places of darkness in your own life? And how are you ministering the light into the dark places that exist in our world? How are you bringing light and joy and salvation that is offered to us in Christ? We do that remembering, again, R.C. Sproul said, God has entrusted to us the ministry of the word, not its results. There is great encouragement in that. God has entrusted to us the ministry of the word, not its results. We cannot manufacture the results, but we can minister the word. And so Simeon concludes with a message to Mary in verses 34 and 35. He says, this child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel, to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. A sword will pierce your own soul too. And in the margin of my Bible, uh, next to those verses, I have written the reference, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24 says this, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Simeon's prophecy shows that from the beginning, God had a mission for Jesus that required him to suffer. God sent Jesus to be salvation, but not all will receive salvation. God sent Jesus to be salvation for all the world, and some will rise and be saved, but others will fall in rejection of the Savior. Jesus comes as savior and as stumbling block. Jesus reveals the heart. And as Jesus reveals the heart, some will see a need for forgiveness and receive Christ by faith. But others will reject Jesus by unbelief, speaking against God and the exclusive salvation that can only be achieved by the way of the cross. By his word, Jesus reveals our hearts and confronts us. One last quote from R.C. When there's something in the word of God that I don't like, the problem is not with the word of God, it's with me. When was the last time you came across something in the word of God that you didn't like? If you haven't found something objectionable lately, you might not be looking hard enough. The light of Christ continually shines into the darkness. What glorious salvation is available in this light. Christ does not just shine for a moment and then disappear. His saving light continually shines to sanctify, to set us free, to bring salvation to the fullness of our life. And he shines through us 
into ministry to others. And so it is said that we should be like a picture frame in which the Lord Jesus Christ is displayed. And God is not concerned whether we are a gold frame, valuable in the world's eyes, or a simple wood frame like Simeon. God is only interested that we be an empty frame so that when people look at us, they see the Lord, who is the truth that sets us free. Amen.